Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on Earth and its last and greatest wilderness on a voyage to Antarctica. Hello and welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica, brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm your host, Alok Jha. In part one of this special two-part episode, we heard from Dwayne Fields about his life and work as a polar explorer. Today, I'm delving further into Antarctica's colonial history with historian and climber Dr. Ben Madison. Ben's book, Class and Colonialism in Antarctic Exploration, looks at the discovery of Antarctica from below. It focuses on the sailors, the sealers, whalers, cooks and engineers who were all essential in bringing the upper-class hero explorers to the continent and supporting their expeditions. He's currently writing a history of the Southern Ocean, gazing out on his subject matter from Bruny Island in Tasmania, where he lives. When not writing, Ben engages in his lifelong passion for exploring wild places and has pioneered climbs in Australia, Greenland and North Wales. Ben, let's talk about your own trips to Antarctica. How many times have you been? I've probably been, say, uh, yeah, probably 25, 30 times. Does it get boring going to see the same old white space? Well, it's never the same old white space. Um, on the one hand, in, in the general picture, it is the same. And it's it's like going to see... Uh, just a friend because it's like oh and because it, it makes you feel good it's like oh that is fantastic i haven't seen you for a while it's absolutely wonderful to see an iceberg again uh you know that that that, that majestic um creature the iceberg that will eventually melt and become you know a little crystal of ice and then finally gone um so there are those parts of going to Antarctica that, that are never old and um, it's never the same Antarctica um, during climate, because not during, I mean, there is no such thing as during climate change. Uh, yeah, with climate change, Antarctica is, um, is changing. What we see there changes and going there for long enough, you can actually start to physically experience that yourself. Uh, which is interesting to be a part of that um, of, of that magnitude of change. Is there a trip that stands out for you? One of my most, of course, one of my most uh, memorable trips, our luck, is when we were on that crazy stuck in the ice trip um, in 2013, and uh, that always sticks in my mind as one of the most beautiful trips I've ever had because I always wanted to stop one of those tourist ships that I was on right in the middle of the ice and just inhabit it for, a, a, you know, more than three hours in one particular place. Um, and that's what happened on that trip and uh, as, as well as many other things. So that is certainly one of my most memorable trips into Antarctica because we stopped. And um, I, I thought that was a fantastic thing to have accidentally happened. Now, in this podcast series, we've discussed the history of Antarctica in uh, great lengths and talked about the heroic age and the explorers. Um, a lot of the history is white and male. 
Um, obviously, that's not the whole story, though. Um, and we've touched on some aspects of that already. But c can you give us a sense of your research into the history of Antarctica and how you're trying to broaden the the the, the white male sort of stories that that the world knows? Uh, look, I, I first became um, interested in engaging in this sort of re revisionist history of Antarctica when I was employed as a historian on Antarctic uh, tourist ships. And I started reading all the Antarctic histories that I could get my, my hands on because I didn't really know too much about Antarctic history. And I was absolutely amazed as a professional historian with a background in labor and working class history I was absolutely amazed about the incredible absence from the history books on Antarctica uh, of working people. It was as though the ships sailed themselves to Antarctica, the sledges were hauled across Antarctica um, just by phantom beings. So that just It just happened. Uh, and so my... my uh, instinctive sort of intellectual and political response was to to investigate more deeply the underpinnings of uh, the heroic uh, achievements of the of antarctic history and antarctic exploration and so what kinds of people are we talking about because you're right when you hear about the scott or shackleton or mawson expeditions um, I suppose you're, there's a mental shortcut. You think, oh well, these guys just made it to the made it to the continent by themselves and sailed their own ships, and and of course that's not true at all. Well, it's not, it's not true at all. And but but I so I'm looking at the sailors who sailed the ships, and then quite often those sailors became the the sled haulers and the uh, the, the sort of the proletarian uh, strata of the Antarctic. Uh, land-based expeditions, but I'm also looking at a whole range of, um, of of other people that never really make it properly into the histories of Antarctic exploration. Like the 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 people, often boys who were sealers in the early 19th century, late 18th and early 19th century, so up to about 1825, the sealers who who were a part, a big part of the early human engagement with antarctica and in in many ways they were they were they were explorers as well and we we often don't know the names of most of these people there were thousands of them in the early 19th century um early 18th century sorry and they, and and they we don't know their names uh but nonetheless they were there they were they were part of the process and then we 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 leap forward to the early 20th century and they, um, th those un anonymous proletarian masses, uh, they're in the sealing industry. So we're looking at sailors. We're looking at uh, the the people who who worked as cooks and mechanics on the in the early twentieth century. A whole range of these sort of people who never never get named really. Um, we've been hearing from. Um an explorer a british explorer called Dwayne fields in this uh, in this series and he's in some respects a, a non-traditional antarctic explorer he was born in jamaica he comes from a working class background in london um the kinds of mm -hmm. backgrounds that don't traditionally 
um, go off exploring um, in the polar regions. The polar the polar explorers that the the, the, the UK is familiar with are the sort of um, a bit middle class, upper class, almost aristocratic uh, explorers that, mm. uh, that you hear about, mm. and and the the stories mm. you're telling me now about the the, the sealers and the, the 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 working people who went to Antarctica in the in the heroic age, you know, the, the, there's there's parallels, um, and I, I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about the kinds of places that that the people you're talking about came from. That, that where did they? How did they end up going to Antarctica? What was the, their route mm. to that place? Because you know, and and how is it that we don't know about them? Mm. So, so if you if we take um, uh, well, some of the very first working class explorers into the southern regions, uh, not necessarily into Antarctica, but into the southern deep, close into Antarctica, going way back to Magellan's time, they were actually prisoners, convicts who were were taken up from the jails and put onto the ships as conscript um, explorers, basically. Uh, so we obviously don't know their names, and, and uh, but but we we know very much that they were sort of coerced into into undertaking these um, in taking these roles. Now we jump forward several centuries up to the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century with the sealing industry, and and what we do know is that. These, and they were mainly male at this point, these young, and they were mainly, a, a lot of them were young boys. In their, they were teenagers. And I'm thinking of one young lad who was a part of a, a group of shipwrecked sealers on the Kerguelen Islands uh, in, the, in, in the early 1820s who came from Essex. And he was 16 years old. And he spent years and years, uh, four years, shipwrecked on the Kerguelen Islands before he was rescued. And a lot of the people who worked on these ships were very down and out. They were, the sealing industry was the home for, as far as I can see, for the the people who really had very little options in, in uh, British society and American society. It's another interesting group of workers that come into the picture here. Um, in the sealing with the sealing industry, and they reappear again in the whaling industry in the early 20th century. And they are a group of workers who uh, were brought from the um, Cape Verde Islands into uh, the, the sealing ships stopped at the Cape Verde Islands in the early 19th century for salt for curing the seal skins, and they also picked up young uh, indigenous workers on the ships and they took them down to Antarctica. And uh, we don't know much about them, but we do know that we have a few examples of or evidence that they were there. Um, and that's in the early 18, um, 1820s and so on, and 1840s. And then by the early 1900s, the early 20th century, they are back there again. Um and they were back there in a remarkable way in the whaling industry um, on the Antarctic Peninsula and South Georgia. One of the things that fascinates me about this group of workers is that uh, they are Africans. They are anonymous. We don't we don't know their names, uh, and they were described by the British uh, inspector of whaling. You know, on the Antarctic Peninsula in, 18, in 1923, 1923 as slaves. 
These were enslaved Africans working in the whaling, the British whaling industry in 1923 in Antarctica. That's not something you hear about very often. <laughs> that is not something you hear about very often for probably good reasons. It's hard to uh, create a romantic view of Antarctic history when you, um, when you in, in, include in it these kind of uh, these kind of experiences and these kind of uh, circumstances in which people found themselves uh, in Antarctica. Given the, the fact that the, the, these stories are lesser known, I wonder, how did you go about uncovering them? Where did you go for your information about these sealing expeditions and, and the people who were on them? Um, it sounds as if they were almost, they, were, they weren't even seen as people and they, they weren't recorded. They, there's no stories told about them. There's no uh, books written about them. Mm. Well, it's quite interesting because there is a paucity of information about, about the people that I'm interested in. And, and that's no, and there's no, it's no accident that, that there's a paucity of information. Uh, all the naval powers uh, required all their personnel to surrender when the expeditions had returned. All their information that they had gathered, notes that they had, notes that they had taken, diaries they had kept, uh, pictures they had drawn, and remarkably even up into the early 20th century, photographs that they had taken of Antarctic, on their Antarctic employment. So there's an intentional um, effort to control the information that is flowing out from Antarctic expeditions to the who, who wider world. Who is controlling that? Who, who is the, who is the well, organisation? Well, the, the organisations are, are the are the expedition leaders and the financiers, the people who finance the expeditions. They're, they're, they're controlling it. In the first in the first place, it was the British the British Admiralty that required their all their personnel to surrender up to the Admiralty uh, any records that they had created, any artefacts that they had created during the um, during their period of service. So it's a, it's a it's a the question then of how do you get the information is a very interesting one because there's an intentional effort by the, on the part of the authorities to control what information comes out. But nonetheless, there are always a few cracks in that plan. The plan never is completely, uh, totally effective. So, for example, one of the most um, crucial expeditions in Antarctic history was James Cook expedition uh, to in 1775, to which went the second expedition went very close to the Antarctic continent, and one of his uh, sailors, an Irishman named John Mara, when the expedition got back, wrote up an account of his of the expedition, and it was highly critical of the authorities. It was highly critical of the of the aristocratic tendencies of many members of the hierarchy of those of that expedition uh and and so that was that is available you can that is now reprinted so that's one, one way of getting into it um 
a, a number of the sealers who fell on really hard times after their period of sealing uh, left accounts of their time as, as sealers because they were trying to use this as a way of um, a way of making an income in the middle of the 19th century this is when there was a bit of a vogue for for 19th century exotic adventures in Europe and in England so they would publish their they'd write their accounts of their ship period of shipwreck or their period of life as a sealer and uh, and um, and give us many details about the the lives of of people who are at the bottom of the antarctic hierarchy could could you paint a picture of what life would have been like for some of these people um on on these expeditions um i mean we've we've talked about some people being coerced onto these ships um Mm. as slaves um or 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 as, as prisoners we talked about people being left to row um, along unknown coastlines by themselves to look for to look for seals um, and th- th- this sounds like a very hard and uh, life that that either you're coerced into or you you do if you've got no other options i mean is that the is that the picture you get from your research well for, uh, what is remarkable about the accounts that are that come from the, the lower decks if you like that from John Marra in 1776, right through to the members of Mawson's expedition in the 1911-12-13 period. They all displayed incredible awareness of um, the class basis of, of Antarctic exploration, and they also display an incredible awareness of the fact that totally against the whole heroic and Antarctic romantic vision, they would rather be virtually anywhere else but Antarctica. They don't want to be working these ships. They don't want to be uh, spending days breaking the ice from the sails, breaking the ice from the from the decks so that the, the ship can sail. They don't want to spend all their time up to their waist in freezing cold water. They don't want to be wearing uh, anoraks they have to waterproof with paint. They don't want to be doing this, this kind of work. Incredibly harsh. And if you go, the worst was, well, the sealers were, you know, a lot of these sealers were employed on these ships for um in terrible conditions often in the middle of antarctic winters or antarctic storms with bare feet uh having to pay for their own footwear uh quite often not getting paid at all if their uh if the cargo was um you know went rotten or the ship sank or anything like this or if they didn't find any seals they wouldn't be paid at all so very very harsh conditions of work uh when you get up to the land-based sledging expeditions really the heartland of the heroic achievements the scots the shackletons the amundsons the the mawsons um you know there's a whole uh group of people underpinning those expeditions who do the cooking on these expeditions they do the sledge hauling on these expeditions 
they do the maintenance of the equipment on these expeditions. Um, so the distinction between classes was really quite stark. Hello, I'm Camilla Nichols, CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage, from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, and we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet, and even adopt a penguin at ukaht.org. Or search for the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Another another issue that's come up um, repeatedly in in, in this podcast series uh, about the history of Antarctica is uh, that we, we know about the stories of the heroes. We know about the stories of the um, the sort of aristocratic men, um, the white men mostly, who who went to the continent. Um, but that clearly there were women. There were clearly people of color who had been to the continent. You've talked about some of those um, already. Mm. And I wonder if you could, we could just go back to what, what the history is of people of color, women on the continent, mm. Um, mm. but from a more realistic perspective rather than um you know just the ones that we know have been written about we have sort of prominent contemporary individuals like george washington gibbs jr and barbara hillary and then and Dwayne fields who allow us to and their examples allow us to sort of tell a bit of a different story about antarctica um but before them there was a big backstory of of uh non-white um connection into Antarctica and and you can take it right back if you wanted to into the histories of Australian indigenous peoples indigenous peoples in the Pacific and Aotearoa New Zealand uh, with their oral traditions of explorers that go deep south from in the middle of the Pacific and in this is sort of in in 700 at the current era um, and come back with with reporting um, th- things that sound like icebergs. Um, so it goes, it can go way back there. And then there's the whole indigenous observations in southern Australia and southern New Zealand about uh, what is the meaning of the of the aurora australis, the southern lights. What are the, what does that mean about what is down there? Um, but more tangibly or more close to our own time we go back to the sealing industry um, and the whaling industry and both those industries being maritime industry global maritime industries brought people of color into uh, wherever they went so the, there was a big connection between South Africa and the sealing industry in the subantarctic islands of the Kerguelens and uh, other islands around there and although it's little mentioned, uh, there's no doubt that there, some of the people who were there were in there were were of African heritage. Uh, there's little. It is well known now that uh, many people in the early whaling industry were from uh, the Pacific Islands and from uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and from uh, places in Australia as well. 
So that that is a that connection goes way back, and then we come up into the uh, heroic era, and the the very first the very first land based expedition, the Borchgrevink expedition to Antarctica, eighteen ninety eight to nineteen hundred or nineteen hundred one, took with them two indigenous people from. Uh, what was called Lapland in those days, the Sami people, as experts, as polar experts. And those people brought their knowledge of how to, um, how to survive and how to operate in polar regions. The Japanese expedition, the Shiraza expedition in 1910, also brought two Ainu people from what is now the Russian island of Sakhalin uh, with them as polar experts. And the whole paraphernalia of the heroic era expeditions, uh, or much of it, was based on Indigenous knowledge that was appropriated um, in various ways by the European, um, uh, and in this case, in the Shirazi case, the Japanese expedition. Could you talk a bit more about George Washington Gibbs? Um, the, the, the history books say that he's, in 1940, the first African-American man to set foot on the continent um we've talked already in this conversation about how there were people of uh, from africa who who were on that continent before uh, how does he or he fit into their story my view is that individuals like george washington gibbs jr um and barbara hillary so those people had unimaginable struggles as people of color to break into the white men's club, they had a woman of colour to break into the white men's club of Antarctica. Unimaginable struggles. <clears throat> but nonetheless, um, I think I resist bringing them completely into uh, the story in the sense that do they become the new people of colour heroes? So I'm, I'm against the whole notion of heroism and the heroic narrative of Antarctic history and Antarctic exploration. So these individuals, and I'm not trying to diminish the struggles that they had to do what they did, but if we think about Antarctic history as a series of prominent individuals then I think it leads us inevitably back into the heroic discourse. So that's my starting point for thinking about George Washington Gibbs and Barbara Hillary and and Dwayne Fields. So behind, underneath them, you know, and, and in a century before them, there were people of colour, and I suspect there were probably even uh, Chinese people who were a part of the sealing um, process in um in um, Antarctica. How should we think about these untold stories? You, you've uncovered many. There are probably scores more people that we don't hear mm. about when it comes to the mm -hmm. traditional views of Antarctica. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wonder, how, you know, it, it's very easy to, I suppose it's not easy. I suppose it's very simplistic to just think, oh, well, um, this is just another 
episode of whitewashing history these things history is always told mm -hmm. by the, the victors and we, we know that but mm -hmm. how should we think about these mm -hmm. things now what should we be doing to try and bring out these stories and, and why would we do that um, well, yes, and why? Yeah. yeah. What, 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 what's the point? What, what's the point of making these observations? I mean, my my, my take on this is that um, it's important to uh, to know that the so-called heroes uh, were there with the support of a huge number of people that were providing them with the, the kind of the, the basics of life, basically. Their, their achievements were, were built on, on, on the, the labour and the shoulders of, uh, of, of an anonymous, you know, massive people. Um, and why is that important? For me, that's an, an important observation because I think um, as we are, uh, in this era of hyper individualism, the idea of the hero is becoming so powerful, and maybe it has been for you know since the nineteen sixties. Uh, has become so powerful, and it attributes success to um, an individual personality, uh, an individual set of qualities that I think is a real. Uh, really misleading view of how um, society operates and these people weren't extra weren't extraordinary individuals who who engaged in these antarctic um uh heroic expeditions as leaders they were they were individuals of their societies and we all, always need to bear in mind i think that in that individuals are always products of their context. So I think it's important to, to know more fully what that context is. And then when we come to think about Antarctica um, in current times, for me it's one of the most profound facts about Antarctica is it's the one of the very few places on earth that was a true, what we know in Australia as a terra nullius, that is to say an unowned land. Not unoccupied, but unowned land. It was also unoccupied, as it happens, and I think that that had has had profound consequences for how Antarctica is um, sits with us today. Um, in in for for reasons that I uh, think are to do with the fact that Antarctica was a continent that was never had to be conquered. There never had to be an indigenous population dispossessed. It was never um, its ownership by the powers that have come to be stewards over it has never been morally um, morally uh, compromised by a violent process of dispossession. That is always the story elsewhere in the world. And I think that it's on this basis and only on this basis that it's been possible to create Antarctica as the continent of peace. You cannot imagine a continent that had been riven by uh, ethnic, race and genocidal um, processes could ever be 
described as a continent of peace. That's very profound. And I think that that's a, it's a very interesting way of looking at it because I feel like the story you're telling also tells, says that even though this is a, conf, a, a continent of peace, the getting to that point still required the labor and the bodies of many, many people, indigenous people, um, people of color who have been forgotten in, in, in getting there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons that I want to um, want to have their presence in the Antarctic story, um, you know, much more evident. Yeah, it's a, it's, mean, a, it's a strange type of colonialism. It isn't, it isn't colonialism in the sense of going to a place and displacing the people who live there, but taking people mm -hmm. with you to then forget about them to conquer a new place. It's a, I, I don't know how to think about it. Why does Antarctica matter to you? You wrote me this question. I was, I've been thinking, why does Antarctica matter to me? I'm thinking, actually, does Antarctica matter to me? I'm thinking, well, is Antarctica any more special than any of the other place, amazing places on the planet? And I think the answer I've come up with is, yes, Antarctica does matter to me because it is such a great example of how how history can make a fabricated view of of the past, which is so at variance with what we need to know. I mean, I, I think it's a really good example of the role that historians can play in in the modern world, because we can we can look at Antarctica and say, well, you know, we don't really have a proper understanding of it without uh, having a historical understanding. Of course, you know, there are the tropes of Antarctica, the wilderness. Now that trope is becoming less and less uh, viable because it's becoming less and less a wilderness. Before COVID, the annual visitation numbers to Antarctica were about 40,000 or more. And I think that had increased from about 4,000 15 years before that. And yet it is still an incredible capsule on global, uh, global climate history. Um, and it's still an incredible place to uh, to dream in, and it's an incredible place to um, break your heart in with its uh, with its beauty. Ben, that's a lovely place to end. Thank you very much for your time. It's very my very very pleasure. Thank you for listening. A voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Next time, I'll be talking to scientist Dr. Kelly Hogan to find out what studying the history of Antarctic ice can tell us about climate change and the future of our planet. To find out more about our guests, including photos and videos, head to our website at www.ukaht.org or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Trust's Antarctica Insight programme, supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha, and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer, and the music and sound design is by Alec Hughes.